listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. So as you all know, we're in this series, Then Sings My Soul, and each week we're kind of using a song to set up the sermon for that for that day, and uh, you know, when, when Robbie asked me if I would if I would do a sermon on one of the Sundays, I think in his mind he thought it was because I'm a musician, and so it would be an easier task for me than uh, than a different sermon series. And, and in a way, it's it's true. I mean, mine is a life that has been uh, indelibly shaped by music. Um, but the songs that I think speak to me the most speak to um, the condition of my life, and and and. Uh, those that make me think and reflect and those that kind of have shaped me are usually the ones that deal with mortality and legacy and memory and all of those things. Movies, too. I'm, I'm drawn to those kinds of movies. And so <clears throat> um, this song uh, in particular is one that I think is, is beautiful. Uh, it's a, a song by Death Cab for Cutie. Anybody know Death Cab for Cutie? Yeah? A few, a few DC for C fans? Okay. Uh, they're, a, they're an indie rock outfit out of Seattle. Um, they're, kind of, they're kind of a product of the kind of post-grunge kind of jam band movement out of there. And uh, they're primarily comprised of their lead singer, whose name is Ben Gibbard. He also is the lead singer of the Postal Service. And he is possibly one of my favorite uh, lyricists of all time. And Def Cab is one of those bands that's had some glimpses of mainstream success. They've had a couple... A couple singles go gold. I think they had one go platinum. Um, I Will Follow You in the Dark. That's probably their biggest song. Um, and they've, they've, but they've kind of subsisted on the periphery of the mainstream, right? They've never really found huge success. But there's a very good chance that they're your band's favorite band. I'll put it that way. And whereas most of the songs that we presented in this series were chosen because within themselves they presented some kind of idea that we wanted to examine or they kind of put forward some kind of thought or, or sentiment that we wanted to look at. It's not so much anything that's within the song that I want to talk about today, but more kind of the, the themes that surround this song. Like I said, songs that are about mortality, about life, about death, about reflection, memory. Those are the things that, that, uh, that have really kind of spoken to me over my life. So this song is written from the perspective of someone who is sitting in the waiting room of a hospital. And they are bracing to hear bad news about the passing of a loved one. And as they're sitting there reflecting, uh, this, the author seems to be trying to take in his surroundings, right? He describes what he smells and what he sees and who's there and what he hears. And, and, and it's, it's a very sensory song. My glasses are fogging up. It's making, me hard, making it hard to see my notes. Um, <clears throat> And he's trying to cement the memory of this moment in his mind. And it occurs to him as he's doing so, as he's shaping his memory, he, he reflects that his memory itself is unreliable. He says, uh, it sang like a violent wind that our memories depend on a faulty camera in our minds. Even as he's trying to commit this moment to memory, he's commenting on his brain's seeming inability to do so. Because he's about to move from a stage in his life where this person was there into a stage where this person's not. And he's trying to capture this, and, and he, he can't. He can't hold on to this moment. And it's on the subject of memory that I want to speak today. You see, memory is kind of a funny thing. Um, 
It's not, it, it wouldn't be one of my sermons if I didn't work in a little bit of brain science, so bear with me here. We understand very little about how memory works, right? Like most of our brain functions have a, a specific locus, like a specific point in our brain that deals with that thing. So like we have a speech center and we have like a place that deals with our vision, a place that deals with our sense of smell. But memory is spread out all over the place. Memory is really decentralized in our brain. Memory doesn't happen in one place. It happens all over our brain. And because of this, memory is kind of fluid. We don't, we don't remember well. In fact, every time you recall a memory, you shape your memory a little bit. That's like those, those fish stories, you know? I caught a fish and it was this big. And then the next time you tell a story, it was this big. And this big. That's not us being deceitful. That's actually our memory kind of slipping away from us as we recall it. The more we recall a memory, the more that we shape it. Uh, I'll tell you a story uh, <laughs> kind of along those lines. Um, one time, I, I used to have this story about something that happened to me in school that I loved to tell. And I told it to everyone, and it always got a laugh. It was a funny story. And I would, you know, so I would tell it pretty frequently. And then one day I told it to someone who didn't laugh and kind of just frowned at me and stared, listened to the story, just didn't say anything. And at the end of the story, he said, that didn't happen to you. That happened to me. And I said, I said what? And he said, that's not your story. That happened to me in high school. Every detail of that, that, that you're lying. And I said, no, I'm not. That happened to me. I remember it. And what had happened, as I kind of retraced my steps, I followed the trail of breadcrumbs of telling that story, I realized that he had told me that story a long, long time ago. <laughs> and I had told that story from his perspective originally, and I guess somewhere along the line to kind of simplify it, instead of saying, oh, well, this happened to my friend, and he said this happened, and he said this happened, and he said this happened, I eventually just started saying, well, this happened to me. And not only did I start doing that, I started believing it. Like it, it and I started, I had details of this memory, and as he told me, that didn't happen to you, that happened to me. I'm sitting there, I'm like, no, I remember being there. I remember, I remember the people, I remember where I was. I could, I, there were details of the memory that I had that didn't belong to me. I, it never happened. It was a complete fabrication in my mind, but I was able to remember it in vivid detail. In fact, uh, interrogators are able to by asking certain questions leadingly, they're able to plant false memories. We're, we're learning just now about how extent, to the extent this can happen. That, that there has to be, there's a, kind of a call for, uh, you know, when, when, when a, a suspect is brought in and interrogated to ask questions in a responsible way and to record it because it's, it's actually surprisingly simple to plant memories in people's minds. So, uh, Despite the malleability of our memory, it remains a vital function to our life. Like, we need our memory to survive. We are pattern-recognizing creatures. It's how we live. It's how our brains work. Our memories also seem to be indispensable to our senses of self. Uh, if you've known someone who's suffered a traumatic brain injury or, or uh, an illness that affects their memory, it, it, you'll, you know that it kind of feels like you're losing that person, even though they're very much still there. And so much of what makes them is still there, but because their memories are affected, it feels like, it feels like a loss of that person to an extent. 
Memory also plays an important role in scripture. The Old Testament in particular makes frequent mention of memory. And more than the act of recalling something in scripture, to remember is to hold oneself faithful to something, to God, to a commitment. When God says he will remember his covenant in Genesis again and again and throughout scriptures, God's not just saying, well, oh yeah, I remember that time I made that commitment with my people. Yeah, I remember that. He's saying, I'm going to hold myself faithful to it. When the psalmist says, I will remember your mighty acts, O God, he's not merely saying, hey, remember that time God did all that neat stuff for me? He's saying that that's going to provoke in me a certain kind of living, a certain kind of of lifestyle, a certain kind of faithfulness. So memory is more than just recollection. It's, it's, a, it's, it's tied to faithfulness, right? To remember is to be faithful. A life of faithfulness is a life of memory. You all with me so far? You connecting these ideas? Okay, good. So in no small way, our vocation as people of faith is to be a people of memory. When things... Uh, <clears throat> And so I want, I want to take a look at a couple things that kind of affect the way that we remember. So the first condition that causes, I think, forgetfulness in us is good times, when things are going well, the mountaintop, right? When we find success, when we find favor, when we find um, abundance, when things are going well, I think that's something that affects our memory. Let's go ahead and take a look at a scripture. Uh, we're going to look at Deuteronomy 8, 7 through 18. This is a little bit of a long one, so bear with me. I'll go ahead and read it. Um, <clears throat> and this is, this is kind of, this is in Deuteronomy. This is where Moses is uh, giving the speech to his people. And it's near the end of his life, right? He's giving, he's giving the law. And he's telling people that they're about to go into Canaan. They're about to go into the promised land. And Moses is aware that he's not going to go with them. And so he's kind of giving this final plea to, please be faithful, please. You, you all have been, he's, and he's not, he's not very nice in Deuteronomy. Moses is not, <laughs> Moses isn't nice to, to the children of Israel. Like he's like, at one point he's like, uh, don't think that you're going into the promised land because you earned it. You've been, you've been problems from day one. Like, and if you've been problems while I've been here, I can only imagine how bad you're going to be when I'm gone, right? So Moses is not being, he's not mincing words here, right? He knows this is the end of his life, and he's, he's kind of pleading for people to be faithful. And so he says this, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a new land, a land with flowing streams, with springs and underground waters welling up in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey. Did I read that twice? Maybe. A land where you will eat bread without scarcity, where you will lack for nothing. A land whose stones are iron and from whose hills you may mine copper. You shall eat your fill and bless the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. Take care that you do not forget the Lord your God. This is, this is where he starts talking about memory. Take care that you do not forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commandments his ordinances, and his statues, which I am commanding you today. When you have eaten your fill and have built fine houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks have multiplied and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then do not exalt yourself, forgetting the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, 
out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness, an arid wasteland with poisonous snakes and scorpions. He made water flow for you from flint rock and fed you in the wilderness with manna that your ancestors did not know, to humble you and to test you, and in the end to do you good. Do not say to yourself, my power and the might of my own hand have gotten me this wealth. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth so that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your ancestors as he is doing today. So Moses is aware that the comfort, the prosperity, the goodness of the time that the children of Israel were, were about to enter might very well cause them to forget. It might cause them to forget where they came from, to forget the conditions from which they were delivered, and to assume, wrongly, that they did it themselves. And another reason, uh, do we have Exodus 22? Exodus 22, he also kind of implores people not to forget. Uh, he says, do not sh you shall not wrong or oppress a resident alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. So there seems to be two reasons that he wants you to remember, right? He wants the people to remember. One is so they don't wrongly assume that it was themselves that got them there. Right, there's that adage about a turtle on a fence post. What do you know about a turtle on a fence post? He didn't get himself there. Someone put him there. It's kind of like that. Not to wrongly assume that you got yourself there. And also so that you don't forget the plight of people who are still where you used to be. So that you don't lose the compassion for people who once were like you are, or, once, or who are like you once were, rather. You see, uh, it, this is a hard thing, I think, for us in America to kind of buy into because I think we've, even though we enjoy uh, relative prosperity, and, I, and I, know, I know there's inequalities in our society, and I don't want to ignore those, but by and large, in aggregate, in America, we, I mean, we wield tremendous wealth. We, we enjoy uh, uh, ridiculous comfort and prosperity. But we've bought into what Walter Brueggemann calls the myth of scarcity. We still suspect that even though things are, are good-ish, that it's not enough. And that is a, a lie. There is a lie that I think lies at the center of so much of our world. And it's the lie that there's not enough. I think this is the lie that this is the voice of the serpent in Eden that tells, Eve, that tells Eve to take. This is the downcast face of Cain. This is the deception of Jacob. This is kind of the, the, the animus and the impetus for so much of, I think, what is what we might call sin nature, to kind of put a, a $5 word on it, is this myth that there's not enough and I need more. If you want to see what the myth of scarcity looks like, and we're not going to turn there and I'm not going to put it up on the screen, but I want to talk briefly, very briefly, about uh, the miraculous feedings that happen in the book of Matthew. There's one in chapter 14 and there's one in chapter 15. And I love that there's two stories. They're very, very similar. And one might, you know, understandably get confused that they're both there. It seems like an error. But what I love is the details that they share and the contrast that they have between them. In one chapter, Jesus feeds 5,000 people using a few loaves and fishes. And when he does so, when he suggests that they do this, his, his disciples say, you know, how are we supposed to feed people? We just have this much food and we don't have, how are we 
How, how's this going to happen, right? They're anxious because Jesus is saying, hey, let's feed all these people. And they're going like, uh, how? And Jesus does it. And then like one chapter later, he suggests it again. And they're like, uh, <laughs> they're literally staring abundance, shalom, provision in his face. And they forget from one chapter to the next. They forget. They buy into the myth of scarcity because they don't see it. They don't understand it. They can't produce it. And so they fall into this trap. Even though they saw it happen just now, they, they forget. So how do we, how do we counteract this forgetfulness, that, that, that abundance, that good times, that prosperity gives us? Well, I think within the feeding story, there's two things that, that indicate. Because Jesus gives us these two actions. What Jesus does in the feeding story is not grand or grandiose. I mean, there's no, you know, there's no slide of hand. There's no nothing up this sleeve, nothing up that sleeve. He doesn't say any words. He just does two things. And I think that the two things that Jesus does in this story are for us an example to follow. And I think for us will help counteract this forgetfulness. It says that Jesus takes the bread and he, does anyone know? He gives thanks and he breaks it and passes it. And that's it. But the two ideas in those two acts are, one, giving thanks, generosity, uh, sorry, gratitude, and then giving, generosity. And I think that for us who are caused to forget in the face of abundance, those are the two things for us to turn to to help us remember. Thankfulness and generosity. We thank God for what we have, and we give it. And those two things are directly contradictory to that myth of scarcity. If you don't have enough, what do you have to be grateful for? And if you don't have enough, what do you have to give? But if we're able to be grateful for what we have and to give it, we've already, we've already overcome that myth. We've already defeated it in its face. All right. I'm, try, I'm, trying, to do a, uh, I'm trying to do a short one today, so I'm going to move on here. So if the first condition that causes our forgetfulness are when times are good, ironically, I think the second thing that causes us to forget, the second condition, is when times are bad. Hard times, difficulties, trials, when we're pressed, when our back's against the wall, when we experience difficulty, discomfort, or lack. Our forgetfulness in this condition is a little bit different. We're not so much kind of prone to flat out forget as we are to misremember when times are tough. In hard times, the temptation is the temptation of nostalgia. Nostalgia is kind of having its day right now. It's kind of running rampant. You feel like every time, I mean, look at our, our media, look at our art, right? Everything is a, a reboot, a remake, a remix, a mashup, a throwback. Ford brought back the Bronco. The Bronco's coming back. The Backstreet Boys are turning next year. Everything's, everything's a throwback. Everything's retro right now. And I think that's telling. I think that, that speaks to where we are, right? 
I'll explain. Let's, let's first uh, look at a biblical example. And for this, we're going to go to Exodus chapter 14, verses 10 through 12. You got that up? All right. As Pharaoh drew near, so this is, this is when, uh, this is in Exodus. This is in the story of the, the, the exodus of the, the children of Israel out of Egypt. And they're up against the Red Sea. And they turn and they look and Pharaoh's coming. And it says, as Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back. And there were the Egyptians advancing on them. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to bring us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you? Uh, is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Conveniently forgetting that it was their cries that moved God to deliver them. They forgot. Their back was against the wall, and all of a sudden Egypt doesn't look so bad. Even though they cried out for deliverance, even though it was their cries that caused God to move for them to send Moses, they forgot. Another example uh, in Numbers. This is Numbers 11, verses 4 through 6. And this is when they're in the wilderness and they don't have anything to eat. And God sends manna. And they have manna. And it's good for like a minute. And then all of a sudden they're sick of manna. And it says, The rabble among them had a strong craving. And the Israelites also wept again and said, If only we had meat to eat. Hey, we remember the fish we used to eat in Egypt for nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Hard times will cause us to remember our past wrongly. Right? The remembering Egypt wrong. All of a sudden, Egypt is this party that they remember in their minds. They forgot the the lash of the driver. They forgot the hunger that they experienced there. They forgot the oppression. And they're just remembering what they're missing right in the moment. And not only that, but they're starting to ask God to deliver them from God's deliverance. Manna is what God was doing to save them. Manna is what God was providing them. And they are confusing that for misfortune. Are you getting me? Like, hard times will confuse you to the point where you will ask God to deliver you from the very mechanism of his deliverance. Does that make sense? They start to remember their past fondly. They forget, to, they forget that it was their own groans for deliverance. So if in good times we are plagued by the myth of scarcity, in hard times we are plagued by the myth of the good old days. I'll give you a more recent example. And I'll try not to step on anyone's toes. Uh, a few weeks ago we had uh, the 19th anniversary of September 11th. And my social media feed uh, you know, was full kind of every year. Uh, on September 11th, people kind of post memes and quotes and 
offerings of memorialization and remembrance for you know, the victims and for the first responders. This year, I noticed something a little different. Among all of those, there were these posts that uh, were not talking about September 11th, but were talking about September 12th and the time after that. And people were remembering, I think, wrongly, that the time after September 11th was this time where we as a nation had kind of come together and coalesced and we weren't divided and we were all, we were all united and, and, and holding each other up and, and that we were all patriotic and that we all had this kind of commonality and there weren't the differences between us didn't matter anymore because we were, we were one country and we kind of, kind of all came together. And while I, I do remember kind of that sense of cohesion that we enjoyed in that time, uh, I'll remind you that what united us wasn't anything good. We were united in fear, in anger, in a desire for retribution. We wanted to know who did this to us. It was not a good time after September 11th. I think we could probably all agree that, right? That wasn't like a great time in our nation's history. But it's no I think it's no coincidence that right now is a time that, at least to me, feels a lot like that time where we are anxious for the future. The future is uncertain and therefore foreboding. And so because we can't see what lies ahead, we're looking back and we're saying, hey, remember that time where things were a little different, even though that time shares a lot with what's in a lot in common with now, to conveniently remember what was a little bit different and forget about all the other stuff is, I think, to misremember. It's, it's a, I think that's not faithful memory. Remember when we had fish in Egypt? Remember when we weren't divided in, two, in September 12, 2001? And it's also no surprising, not surprising that in this time of coronavirus where we all feel pressed upon and we're all kind of experiencing a degree of discomfort and, and a sense of absence and a sense of loss, that we're having a national conversation about how we're going to remember things. I mean, we just had Columbus Day on Monday, and we're having conversations about statues and flags and historical figures and founding fathers. And we're, we're, we're as, a, as a nation, having these conversations about how are we going to remember our own history. And while I don't have the answers, and I would never suggest the answers to those questions, they're far too complicated, I think we owe it to ourselves to have those conversations in good faith, because I think how we remember things is important. The good old days are a myth. Just like scarcity is a myth in America, the good old days are also a myth. We can point to any time in human history where things were good for some people, and I can show you exactly who picked up the check for those good times. So what is our antidote for this amnesia, right? So our antidote, our antidote for the amnesia of abundance and comfort is gratitude and generosity. How do we keep from forgetting in hard times? I think that the key is mindfulness. And I say that as though it's simple. 
Because nothing could be harder than being mindful when you're experiencing discomfort. When the chips are down, our minds crave an escape. We will turn to every manner of diversion and distraction to avoid the painful reality of our present moment. And at best, we will self-medicate this way, right? We'll, I mean, at the beginning of quarantine, everything was sourdough bread starters and Tiger King. Like, that's what we did <laughs> to occupy our time, right? We were binge-watching, and we were going to Pinterest to find some craft. But at worst, I think that's at best we'll do that, right? We'll just kind of distract ourselves. But at worst, we will scapegoat. And I think there's a lot of that happening right now, right? Like an, another big part of our national conversation is who do we blame for this? Whose fault is this? Is it China? Is it our government? Is it boomers? Is it millennials? Like that's, that's the discourse we're having right now. And I think that's a trap. I think that's a mistake. I think that if we try to externalize our experience of suffering, we will rob ourselves of the opportunity to do what times like this can do, which is to reveal within ourselves what God wants to reveal to us, to do the work within our own hearts. I mean, the, the definitive image of hard times in Scripture is the wilderness. But it's always God that drives people to the wilderness. Whether it's the Exodus or whether it's Jesus, the wilderness is where God sends us to shape us. And if we numb ourselves or if we blame everyone else and we externalize and scapegoat, we'll never get what God has for us in the wilderness. We'll never get the, the shaping and the stripping and the buffeting and the, and the strengthening that the wilderness can offer. Right now, we're all being pressed. We're all in a wilderness, I think. I don't know. I, I don't want to pigeonhole anybody. Things might be going great for you right now. I, if they are, you got to tell me what you're doing because I don't, I don't feel that. I feel like things are, are tough. And I don't, see, I don't see them getting better soon. But I, I might be a pessimist in that regard. I don't know. So whether you feel like you're on the mountaintop or whether you feel like you're in the wilderness, I think that we are called to faithful memory. And on the seats near you, you should have a card that says, I will not forget. And there's some lines. It's pretty basic. And I'm going to give you some loose instructions on what to do with that card. If you are feeling like you're on the mountaintop, if you, think that, if you feel like things are going well for you, that you're comfortable, uh, that you have a lot to be joyous over, then what I want you to, I want you to follow those antidotes of forgetfulness there, the generosity and the, and the gratitude. And I want you to just write down some things. It could be three, it could be one, it could be five. There's plenty of room on that card. Just for your own self. You're not going to turn this in. You're not going to share it with anyone. I just want you for yourself to, to, to bring to mind what you're grateful for and what you can be generous with. Or maybe what you have been generous with. If you feel like I do and you feel like you're in the wilderness and you feel like you're being pressed and pursued, then what I want you to remember, I want you to write is what you can be, what you can be mindful of. What is God doing in this, in this moment of your life? What is it inside of you that God might be revealing? 
what God might be shaping, changing. The wilderness is a time of transformation, and if we allow it to, we can be shaped, we can be emptied, yes, but also filled. And we can recognize the, the, the methods of God's deliverance may be the very thing that we're trying to convince God to deliver us from. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.